Yeah, we'll get into the word. If you guys would, please agree with me tonight because the preaching of the word is so important. This goes out beyond here through the internet. Um, I've gotten comments literally from all over the world. My lapel mic is just a little hot, just a tiny bit. And I want us to really pray because as we're living in the days that we're living, there are people out there that are hungry and people in other countries that may not even have the availability that we do to come together like this, that go on the internet to get fed and have come across some of our sermons. So let's pray that God will send this where it needs to be. So Lord, we stand on the promise tonight that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And so we ask you tonight that you will anoint me and speak through me your words of life. Everything that needs to be spoken, it will be as living seeds of truth sown out among the nations into good fertile soil. We pray that even right now the precious Holy Spirit will be sent forth and will begin to prepare um, people in places and situations and circumstances, prepare hearts and minds for what you're wanting to do. And even those that are hearing this, that are alive right now, but also those that are going to be hearing this, they could be driving down the road in a vehicle. Lord, I pray that your precious Holy Spirit will invade where they're at and begin to um, just give us the grace by your Holy Spirit to lock into what the, what the Lord is speaking. You know, just our, our hearts to be in tune, our minds to be focused, that you would anoint our eyes and ears and we have eyes and ears spirit, and we'll be able to be really in tune with what God is saying to us right now. And Lord, I pray that the, the winds of your spirit carry this out among the nations. Let your holy angels watch over it. And Lord, I pray that they would be a washing of the water of the word. That this will be like a sword that's able to penetrate and get where it needs to go. It'll be light shining and dispelling all the darkness, lies, and evil and deception of the enemy and bring truth. We're living in a day where we need truth. Amen. And Lord, that this will go out and accomplish everything you sent it forth to do. And Jesus said the birds of the air represented demons that try to steal the seed. So Lord, we agree together. We bind up any uh, satanic force that would try to hinder the word of God right now. We bind you in the name of Jesus. You will back off. And Lord, let this go forth. Let your mighty angels watch over it. It's going to get where it needs to be, to, to whom it needs to reach. And, and Lord, that this will accomplish what you sent it forth to do. We stand in agreement in Jesus' name, we pray this and we believe. Amen. All right, so I'm going to deal with a fresh anointing, but I'm going to go all over the place tonight, okay? So we're going we're gonna to bounce around, but this is the word of the Lord. I believe God gave me this for you guys tonight. I'm dealing with a series called Mikdash, which is just a Hebrew word that means sanctuary. And why God laid this so deeply in my heart is that in the day that we're living, it seems to me that what used to be a hallowed sanctuary where people would come into church and you would go into the area where the, you know, the platform and the pews are, okay, and there was a sanctuary there. And people reverenced that. They felt that, you know, they were in holy ground. They felt that this is where God moved and touched people. And it was treated with respect. And somewhere along the lines, as we've moved into these latter days, the wording changed and it was you know no longer called a sanctuary in a lot of places it's called an auditorium and the mindset is more entertainment and it's different it's just a different mindset and that's where you get some of the strange things creeping into the house of God that shouldn't be there and so anyway um, God laid this on my heart that he's wanting a sanctuary for his presence to dwell and I can't backtrack and get too much into that but just so you know where we're going 
and I believe that this tonight will be a blessing I don't just preach something that I think in my mind well you know they might be blessed by this or or you know this would be something somebody would want to hear I don't do that I really genuinely pray and I ask the Lord what are you saying and God will give me a sermon and then I deliver that and that's important because anybody can get up and just share something but I don't know about you but I want to know what is the Lord saying right now there's a difference in the Greek there's two words for what we have the English word word w-o-r-d one of them is logos and the other is rhema logos represents the written word what God has spoken and it's written down in the Bible but the rhema word is what God is speaking now and I believe this is a rhema word for us tonight okay all right, so I'm going to start with this. If you're taking notes, you might write down Amos 8:11. I want you to check out this scripture. It, it came to me really strong this week. And I'm just going to read it. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine among the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And for many years, people read that and thought, well, there would come a day when we wouldn't have Bibles for whatever reason maybe you know they became outlawed and I'm sure that that will come in time but that's not actually what this says what this is saying is if I can paraphrase it there'll be plenty of Bibles and there may even be plenty of preachers but there'll be a famine of actually hearing the word of the Lord And we're living in a time where we desperately need the word of the Lord. Now, I hope that I'm able to present this well tonight because I'm deeply concerned. And I can see a lot of things going on. I'm sure you can too. But I'm going to deal this week and next, I'm going to deal with the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The seven churches of Asia. And I'll explain them in more depth next week. But if you want to read Revelation 2 and 3, just as a preparation. Um, I think it'll be a blessing to you, but that's what I'm dealing with. So as I've already ministered on, the seven churches of Asia in Revelation um, 2 and 3, there's many applications, but one of them is that it is a prophetic timeline for the church age. It starts with the church of Ephesus, which represents the early church, but it ends up with Laodicea, which represents the last day church. And that's the day and age that we're living in. But it's interesting because... Philadelphia and Laodicea both of these are in Revelation 3 Philadelphia and Laodicea are two different churches but they seem to run parallel they seem to run like railroad tracks we're living in a time where what Jesus taught he said that the wheat and the tare will grow up together and at the end of the age toward the harvest they would begin to be separated and we're living in a time where the Lord before he comes is beginning to deal with things he's never dealt with and I'm talking about in a very significant way he's, I'm sure he's always dealt with it on some level but God is beginning to separate the wheat from the tares you hear what I'm saying the Bible says that the tares would be gathered first and bundled and would be put in the barn for burning but it's interesting to see that there's groups of people that are being separated out and they're being bundled together and it's weird 
As you're seeing groups, whether it's like the LGBT community, and you're seeing that all of a sudden people that profess Christianity and went to church, and now they're being forced to decide, and now all of a sudden they're for homosexuality, and now they're out of church, and all of a sudden they're being bundled with other people. But you're also seeing the wheat being bundled. And so God is drawing a line in the sand in these latter days that we're living, and he's saying, are you for me or against me? You've got to choose. And that's the thing about the Lord. The Lord is never okay with a gray area about this. You're either for, read the Bible about this, you're either for him or against him. You're either sowing with him or you're sowing against him. You either love him or you hate him. You can't serve two masters. The Lord has never been okay with this halfway committed thing where you're going to love the Lord, but you're also going to love the world. You're going to do this. And it's not like that. You're going to have to choose. And that's the day that we're living. The Church of Philadelphia, which I'm about to explain, and Laodicea are running like a train track. And God is forcing that people are going to have to choose which church they're going to be a part of. And this Laodicean spirit, if you will, if I can call it that, it's really a deception it is very, very strong and very pervasive in our society right now. And so the Church of Philadelphia, if you look at it from a timeline perspective, which most, most scholars agree that there's probably something to this. I strongly believe there is. But there's a timeline. And as you go, the Church of Philadelphia speaks of the timeline of great revival. You know, the days of Wesley, the days of Finney, the days of the Azusa Street Revival, just to name a few. And on into our day, as far as that goes, it's, it's like a revival church, the church that's being restored. How I many of you guys remember me preaching at Pentecost that heaven must receive Christ until the restoration of all things? And God is in the process of restoring everything. And Philadelphia speaks of that restored church, that what God originally intended the church to be and satan attacked down through the ages and stole so much to the degree that in the middle ages even the gospel was snuffed out for the most part there was small remnant groups which I, I might talk about tonight but it was it was a dark time and god has been in the process of restoring everything he started with restoring back the gospel through martin luther in 1517 and since then has been doing great restorations all right, then you have the church of Laodicea, which is lukewarm, compromising. And so let me just read them. Let's go to the church of Philadelphia together. This is Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 7. I've got it in your notes. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. And when it talks about the angel, it's talking about the pastor. So I just want to make sure I put that out there. Okay. Now, the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens... And no one will shut or no one can shut and who shuts and no one opens says this now if you read these Jesus appears to each church in a significant way pertaining to that church and the church of Philadelphia which I hope to explain this well I'm do my best but he reveals himself number one is holy and number two is true the holiness of God the truth and also the one who has the key of David there's an authority to be able to open up a door to open something that nobody can shut and let me tell you something if Jesus ever opens a door for real 
there is not a human being there's not a fallen angel there is not a demon there is not a politician or a government there is nothing that can shut that door you hear what i'm saying if jesus opens up a door for revival and a harvest come what may there may be major attacks maybe jezebel spirits there may be religious people all kinds of persecution but that door will stay open and things will still move forward no matter who's in opposition to it because jesus has the key of david that's just the way that it is and so he came to philadelphia as the one who's holy the one who's true and the one who can open something that nobody can shut and what he shuts nobody can open and he says to the church of philadelphia most of these churches he he had to rebuke them at some point but he did not have to rebuke philadelphia he said i know your deeds behold i put before you an open door everybody say open door now i'm gonna deal with that in a minute which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name we're living in a time where you're going to have to really make up your mind that you know come come hell or high water come satanic attack whatever christians used to look up to that are now away from god whatever is going to happen people are going to set bad examples you know that no matter what i've made up my mind i am going after god you have kept my word you have not denied my name behold i will cause those of the synagogue of satan who say they're jews and are not but lie i will make them come about your feet and make them know that i have loved you so this is great vindication that's taking place because you have kept my word of my perseverance i will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth now what that is is the philadelphia church are those that are going to be ready for the rapture and the lord is going to give them another open door above to catch them out and they're not going to be here we're not going to be here i'm a part of this and i hope you are too we're not going to be here during that time and so this is the, the philadelphia church are basically those that are right with god and that are really embracing what the lord is doing he says i am coming quickly hold fast to what you have how many knows we got to listen to that we got to hold fast we're living in a time where even foundational biblical truths are trying to be challenged people are actually trying to challenge the validity of god's word they won't even talk about the blood of jesus in a lot of places hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown he who overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god he will not go out from there anymore and i will write on him the name of my god the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my god in my new name he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so the promise here there's a lot of promises in this but that when the lord comes that those that are truly of this church of philadelphia are going to be those that will be pillars in the temple of god in other words you're going to dwell in his presence and nobody will be able to take you out of his presence what a promise So let me touch on an open door for a minute many of you know that when paul went to ephesus the second time not the first time on his missionary journeys but when he went the second time that it's recorded in acts chapter 19 and it was a time of incredible revival 
You should read Acts 19. It's amazing. He ended up going there for a short time, but it, revival exploded. He had to stay for two full years, and all that were in that province heard the gospel. So there was a widespread move of the gospel being preached, but also such amazing healings and miracles and signs and wonders were taking place. The Bible says that even handkerchiefs and aprons, people brought to him cloths so that he could pray over them. Because back then it was very difficult to get somebody who was really sick or whatever to church. And he would pray over these things, send them out that even handkerchiefs and aprons were being taken to the sick. And when they were put on, they were healed. And they were laid upon people that were demon-possessed and demons were coming out of them. And it was a major revival to the degree, you can read this in Acts 19, that people in that city began to repent of the dark arts and witchcraft and began to, to bring all of their scrolls and all the paraphernalia that went along with the occult and began to burn it in this big bonfire. And it was a major move of God that shook that region. But this is what the Apostle Paul said about it. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, I'm going to stay on in Ephesus. And he says, because a great door, it can be translated a wide door, for effective work, has opened to me and there are many who oppose me it's interesting the greater the door it seems like the greater the opposition and the attack comes many times before blessing so the greater the blessing that's about to come many times the greater the attack that preceded it but I want you to think about what I'm saying because a great door a wide door for effective work has opened to me so something paul was referring to an open door now go back to this in the church of philadelphia this is the restored church the revival church those that have a heart to see book of acts true biblical christianity he said i have put before you an open door i believe that we're living in a time that the Bible predicted in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3 that he said perilous times will come in the latter days, fierce times, difficult times. I believe we're living in a time where there's such a fierceness in spiritual warfare. But you know what the Lord is saying to us? He's saying, I understand that, let me just read it here again. He said, I know your deeds. I've opened a door before you. He said, because you have little power, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. He realizes that we're living in times where people have felt kind of worn out. And the spiritual warfare, it seems to be relentless. But you know what the Lord is saying to you and I? He's saying, even though that may come, he says, I have the key of David, and I will open up a door for you that no man can shut. There's no devil that's going to be able to shut it. I will open up a supernatural door for you that will cause revival to break out and a harvest of souls to come in. And there's not going to be a thing that anybody's going to be able to do about it. Even though we're in fierce times. This is referenced in Isaiah 22:19 when it was time for there to be a transition. Some, there was about to be a regime change. There was someone in power that God was going to remove. And there was somebody that he was going to thrust them into that place. And I want to read it to you. I will depose you from office. I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your tunic and tie a sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will set the key 
of the house of David upon his shoulder, that when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a tent peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory for my father's house. There came a time, Isaiah 22, 19 through 22, when it was time for change. See, Satan wants to oppose the change. And there can be fierce opposition from principalities and powers, people used of the devil, all kinds of Judases, all kinds of Jezebels, all kinds of things going on. There can be a lot of opposition. But the Lord is saying when it's time, when it's the fullness of time, where what has been up here to be brought down and what's down here to be brought up, when it's time for there to be an open door, the Lord says, I will open a door that nobody can shut. Do you hear what I'm saying tonight? I feel this is prophetic for River of Life, and I hope you hear me. God is about to cause a regime change in this region. There have been things here and throughout this nation that have been in positions of power and authority that it's been man, it's been of the world, it's been of the devil, but it's not been of God. And I believe God is tired of it. And I believe there's a great shaking that is about to happen. And God is going to begin to pull down things that need to be pulled down. And he's going to begin to raise up some things that need to be raised up. And he's going to begin to send angels into places to remove obstacles and hindrances to his purposes in the earth. And he's about to bring an open door for this ministry and probably others as well that he's going to open up something like he did for Paul in Acts 19 where all of a sudden revival breaks out. There's a harvest that comes in. It's a great, wide, effective door and there's nothing that the devil's going to be able to do about it. But that is for the church of Philadelphia. Those that love the Lord. And he said about this king, Eliakim, that he was raising up, I will drive him like a, a tent peg in a firm place. When God has put you where you're supposed to be, there's not going to be a devil that's going to be able to remove you. All right. So the church of Laodicea, now this is the flip side. These are those that are sellouts, those that will be falling away from the faith, those that are not really sincere, those that have grown lukewarm and, and some of them cold and they, they're backsliding and all that. These are those that are not going to be ready when the rapture takes place. And so God is doing a sifting. And he says to the church of Laodicea in uh, Revelation 3, starting with verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness. So he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I put there wishy-washy or compromising to give you an idea. He says, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That can translate vomit you out of my mouth. You know what it's saying? It makes the Lord nauseous. That's what he's saying. Because you say, this is important that everybody see this, because if you read these seven letters to the churches of Asia, it seems like the ones that thought they weren't doing good were doing better than they thought. But the ones that thought they were doing good weren't. And that should humble all of us that we need to ask the Lord, why don't, why don't we um, ask you, Lord, how do you see us? How are we really doing? But he said this, because you say, Laodicea, I'm rich. I have become wealthy. I'm in need of nothing. But you do not know that you are actually wretched, 
and miserable and poor, blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So right there, I want you to see, gold refined in the fire is where God begins to put us through some things that we need to go through. None of us want to go through the fire, but it does purify us. The garments have to do with righteousness, that we're really repenting and getting right with God for real. And the eye salve is the anointing, anointing our eyes so that we can see things that we need to see. And he said this in verse 20 about the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. When Jesus was walking the earth 2,000 years ago, and he was ministering among the Jewish people for three and a half years. He was sent to his own first. They rejected him out of the synagogue. He was put out of the church of that time. You hear what I'm saying? His ministry was not accepted. In the last day church, instead of seeing the Lord walking in among us, he's trying to say here about the last day Laodicean church, not necessarily everybody out there, but the Laodicean church, that he's actually outside the church knocking. And he says, if any man, if any person, if an individual will hear my voice and will open to me, I'll come into him. I don't know about you, but I want to be that man. There's a lot of places right now that things have gotten weird. And the Lord is outside the church, knocking to get back in. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're living in a time where there's a great sifting that's going on. God is purging. He's purifying. He's laying the ax to the root. He's dealing with things. And we have a choice. We can either really go after God with all of our hearts. We can ask him, Lord, purify me, cleanse me, prepare me as a bride. And I may be getting ahead of myself, but there seems to be a big difference between the body and the bride. The body, when God created Adam, he created him out of the actual dirt that was on the earth. You picture God Almighty coming down and kneeling on one knee like that. And he formed him, fashioned him in the mud. And then when he had formed that shell, the Bible says he grabbed, you know, like the back of his head. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And he breathed like a resuscitation. He breathed down into Adam a spirit and a soul, and he became a living being. But if you notice that the body had to do with the dirt. But whenever it came time for Adam to have a bride... God didn't create Eve that way. He created her by a rib that was pulled out of him. There's a big difference between the body and the bride. I'm hoping that you see this. There's a lot of people. Now, I know River of Life loves the truth, so I love preaching here. 
But things can get quiet some places you go and you start preaching the truth. But there's a lot of people that go to church across this nation and around the world. There's a lot of people that are wrapped up in Christendom. It's a religion. It's a religious ritual. It's a social club. It's something maybe their family was, you know, they were born into or whatever. There's a lot of people that profess Christianity, but not all of them are born again, sincere, true Christians. Some of them are just religious. And some of them are hypocritical. They're one way at church, another way out of church. And um, God is not fooled. And when it comes time for the rapture, it's not going to be for everybody that's in that body. See, that body is made of the earth. And it, it's, but the bride are those that have made themselves ready. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. I want to give you three quick things about the travels of David so I can close that. As I've been dealing with this series on Mikdash, I dealt with the seven places David went when he was fleeing from Saul. So let me just sidestep real quick, and then we'll get right back into this about the bride. But three things David had to learn. This is prophetically here. Along David's travels, this would be the, the fifth, sixth, and seventh place that he went. The fifth place that he went was called Mizpah, and that is a watchtower in Hebrew. It has to do with the power of Jesus' name. The Bible says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and those can, you know, his righteous ones, we can run into it and be saved. There, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and I have seen the power of Jesus' name, his name above every other name. The Bible says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And I'm going to tell you, his name is so powerful. You can go right now, you can go somewhere. You're around either religious people or the heathen. You can talk about anything. But when you start saying the name of Jesus, just watch how they react. Why? Because his name has so much authority and power, it's going to make them squirm. That's why. It's like when you begin to talk about his name, it's like in the spirit realm, it's like the darkness starts to tremble. The forces of hell begin to get scared. His name is so powerful. And I want you to understand the authority and the power in his name. I have seen, when I've used the name of Jesus, I have seen many times we, we have where demons have left people. Let me tell you a story. There was a lady that, that came on the 700 Club and she was sharing she'd become a sincere Christian down the road, but in her early years, before she knew Jesus, back when she was a little girl, she went to vacation Bible school, and she had prayed to accept Christ and all that, but she really wasn't, as she got older, she, was, she didn't know the Lord. She was far from God. And she got deeply wrapped up in the occult and got into that type of paranormal study and research where they go into haunted places and, and deal with that stuff, which I strongly recommend nobody ever do that. But anyway, they got into all that, and they would go through and they, they would try to read, you know, if the temperature changed in a room or, you know, the electromagnetic fields and all this weird stuff. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. And they were doing paranormal research. Well, there was this spirit that was in a house and it was very oppressive and, they, and weird stuff was going on. It was a, basically what we would say it was like a, a haunted house, which really is just there was a demon there. Let's make it real simple. Well, anyway, there was a demon in the house. And so they're trying to figure it out 
from that perspective, from the occult paranormal perspective. But at some point, they had tried to get this thing to leave. They had done all the weird occult stuff that you do. You know, they burn sage, they walk through, do their little mumbo jumbo. Nothing's gonna work. And, uh, you know, well, at some point, she got gotten frustrated and just, it came out. She said, in the name of Jesus, this thing goes. And when she said that, they heard a weird sound. They had been dealing with this for a long time. And they had had a recorder, and they played it. It's on the 700 Club. You could probably find this testimony if you look it up on the Internet. But anyway, they had it on a recorder, and there was this blood-curdling scream when she said the name of Jesus. And that thing left. Now, these people, these people aren't even living for the Lord. But yet the name of Jesus had so much power that that thing took off. You know what I'm saying? And they had this weird, uh, inhuman, blood-curdling scream thing when the name of Jesus was spoken. I'm going to tell you, his name is powerful. The next one is Judah. David went there, number six. This Judah means praise. And I'm going to tell you something. The power of praise and worship is so awesome. Man, whenever Israel went to war one time, King Jehoshaphat was scared. I believe this is 2 Chronicles 20. And the, the, these various kings that come up against him, he really didn't stand a chance in the natural. He was asking God what to do. The prophet of the Lord came and told him, you will have success. And so as an act of faith, King Jehoshaphat took the priest, unarmed men. They were not trained warriors. These are priests. He put them in the front and they're all dancing, they're playing their instruments and they're singing to the Lord as they go into battle. They're in front. In the natural, this would not be a good move. But they're all dancing and singing, and they were singing, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. And they're just giving God high praises, dancing and going for it, you know. They're probably thinking to themselves, let's make it a good one. It's our last one, right? But anyway, as they, they topped the hill, and they looked down, God had caused a major confusion to break out, and all they saw was dead bodies as far as the eye could see. And it took them a long time to plunder all of that. There's awesome power in praise. And so let me read you some of the Hebrew words for praise. I love freedom in praise. People that are free in praise are free. You hear what I'm saying? But people that are inhibited in their praise many times are not as free as they think they are. They're wrapped up with some kind of a fear of man or pride or a religious spirit. I'm trying to help people. They're not free. They think they are. But whenever you really get free in your praise, that's an indication that you've really broke free from some religious spirits and pride. All right, here is the Hebrew words for praise in the Bible. Number one, yada. And this means to extend your hands, worship with lifted hands. Man, lift those hands up high. It's like, don't be ashamed. It cracks me up in some places that are so dead spiritually. People have told me, man, it took a lot of courage for me to raise my hand in that place, you know, and I'm thinking, geez, man, they need to come to River of Life, man. Let's get free. Another one was Shabbat, and this means a loud tone. How I many knows God likes loud praise? He just does. That's Psalms 35, 27. I give you a scripture to back up every one of these because the religious spirit is cowering back right now going, dear Lord, shut him up. And the next one is Zamar which means to touch like an instrument. 
playing instruments. God help those that don't think musical instruments are for the church. What in the world? All right, then the next one is Barak, which means to kneel. And then the next one is Toda, which means to give thanks with extended hands. Then, this is the one that is the most commonly used, Halal. And this is where we get the word hallelujah. Did you, go, did you guys know that miraculously around the world, you can pretty much go into Africa, you can go in the Middle East, you can go down into Mexico and South America, and everywhere people seem to know the word hallelujah. Isn't that something? It comes from this Hebrew word halal, which means in Hebrew, shine, boast, rave, celebrate, give light, be given in marriage, be clamorously foolish. Now don't get too crazy, don't hurt your neighbor. But you can get free in your praise. This is dancing, is very common in Jewish weddings. But under halal, it is these words, ruah, which means to shout, leap, or celebrate, gil, which means to whirl or spin about, and taka, which means to clap the hands as in crushing to intimidate the enemy in battle. But I don't know about you, when I read these, I think freedom and praise. Freedom. You know, and God loves it. And the religious spirit hates it. And you can always tell, man, where there's a free church and people are dancing and they're singing and they're, they're, you know, they're leaping and they're free in their praise. There's a freedom in the atmosphere. But whenever you get a religious place that's in some kind of pride or some kind of a religious spirit bondage, man, it takes a lot of guts just to raise your hand, you know. Also, the Hebrew words for worship, shakha, which means to prostrate or bow down. You know, worship, a lot of people don't understand worship. It's not just singing slow songs. You know, people, a lot of times in churches think, okay, well, praise is the fast songs and worship is the slow songs. I got it figured out, right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Praise is connected with the fast songs, the dancing and the shouting and the freedom, all that. Worship, yeah, during the slow songs, I understand. But worship is deeper than just singing slow songs. Worship is is a heart issue and worship also has to do with physical posture believe it or not in the bible just trust me you study this out this would be an interesting study i encourage you to go for it but the word shekhah means to prostrate yourself before the lord atzab means to carve or fabricate did you know that the arts painting and sculpting and all that sort of thing that originally it really should be to glorify christ but man satan sure has had a field day hasn't he with that realm but it has to do with the arts giving worship to God in just means worship but it is an attitude and you see that many times people's heart as they come to worship I'm not talking about praise right now dancing and getting all you know like David you remember the story of David David was a praiser he goes dancing all crazy and being what God wanted him to be and his wife, Mikkel, was up there criticizing him, and she was bearing the rest of her life for it. You'll be careful with that. But the, the worship, you can just see somebody, their head is bowed, their hands are lifted, their heart is sincere. They may get on their knees or get on their face. It's a, it's a posture of worship before the Lord. It's a humility. That would be the word, humility. And it takes humility to be free in your praise and worship because all of a sudden, you don't care what people around you think. You know, I don't think that King David cared too much that his own wife was up in the window there criticizing him. He still danced like crazy, didn't he? He didn't care. 
But see, pride is all caught up with what this person thinks. And, and it, it really, it's a fear of man. It's pride. And it's a religious spirit. And it puts people in some kind of weird bondage where they can't even be free. And God wants us free. The last place David went, and this is the one none of us want, but it's necessary, is a place called Cheret. In the Hebrew, it's three letters, the Chet, Resh, and Tav. And it's, uh, Cheret means um, forest. Now, the last letter in Cheret is the Tav. And this is interesting, just a little side note about Hebrew. The first letter is called the Aleph, and it's like uh, an ox head. And the last letter is the Tav. And you know what the symbol for the Tav is? It's a cross, and it's always been. So when Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, in the Hebrew, he says, I'm the Aleph and the Tav, which represents an ox head, a sacrifice on a cross. And it's interesting to me because whenever you read in the Bible about God, it's in the Old Testament too, God put a mark on people on their forehead it's hard for me to believe it's not a cross but that's just my opinion but the cross speaks of suffering and seclusion and none of us want this but it's necessary in David's final days of preparation David was in a place of suffering and seclusion and he had to wander the caves but God was working some things out in him now I'm gonna tell you something if God's really gonna use you he will put you through times of suffering and seclusion and through those times it will be very challenging but as you come through it you will be a totally different person than you were going into it and you'll be gold refined in the fire you'll be humble and you'll be repentant and you'll be somebody that God can really use and so don't resist this even though none of us pray oh God you know send us to Heret please you know nobody's nobody's praying that but at the same time he'll do it you know and we need it and he knows what we need all right so let me now dovetail back in to the bride and I'm gonna deal with this now as I move start moving toward a close but I'm talking about a fresh anointing tonight I mean as we need a fresh anointing we need a fresh anointing you know what relevant is, really? See, I don't like the word relevant the way it's being used today. So I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but relevant isn't how many tattoos you have and how skinny your skinny jeans are, all right? <laughs> relevant has to do with a fresh anointing on your life. You see, Saul had an anointing, but it was yesterday's anointing. He became irrelevant because he was not obedient. There's a lot of people that, you know, like, man, you know, I love the Lord with all my heart and all this stuff. Well, if you do, it will show up in your lifestyle, won't it? It will show up in your obedience to the Lord, and it will show up in the fruit that you bear. And so Saul became basically a heathen, a rebel. And God was through with him, and he became irrelevant. He was yesterday's anointing. There was a fresh anointing that came on King David. And because of that fresh oil, David was now relevant for that time. We need a fresh anointing on our lives. Yesterday's oil isn't going to do. And so I want you to keep in mind something. I'm, I share this a lot because I'm hoping as I keep sharing it 
that you guys will really get it in your spirit and remember it. But you have to understand that a lot of Jesus' parables are connected with the culture of that time. And so you have to understand the culture. If the Lord was to give a, a word to somebody and he was speaking to us in America and he was speaking maybe to New York and he said something to the effect, I'm totally making this up, but he said something like, your towers will not fall again. All of us would know what he's referencing because we all remember the Twin Towers falling on September the 11th. Okay. But if, if somebody, should the Lord tarry, which I don't believe he will, but anyway, somebody was living a thousand years from now and they read that and they said, well, your towers won't fall. What in the world is that even talking about? They'd have to go back and understand what was going on. So many times you have to go back to the culture to understand what the Lord is actually saying. And so this is really different than our current culture. So I'm going to read this, but let me tell you first about ancient Jewish weddings. Now I've done some serious research on this. It's fascinating. So during this time that Jesus lived, okay, somebody, let's say a young man was interested in getting married. They knew that it was the chore of the young ladies, the single young ladies to come out to the wells and they would draw water for the family and water for the animals. That was part of their chores. And so if a young man was really interested in getting married, he could go out by the well and he just kind of scope it out. If he saw somebody he was interested in, then he would go to her father. And he would say, I'm interested in your daughter. And, um, and the father would set the price. And this was a dowry. So follow me, because this is very different than today. And so the father would set the price. It's a dowry. And they would have to hammer that out. You can just hear the father, you know, he's like, well, I got so many sheep, so many camels, so many goats, and I've got this and that. And you can just, you know, the father, they're, they're negotiating. And the, and the father of the bride is saying, well, you know, you got three camels. I think you could throw in another camel. And I think you could, I'm pretty sure, I've fed this girl her whole life. Pretty sure you can throw in another sheep. And uh, they would negotiate and they'd work it out. So finally, they would decide on a, on a payment, a dowry. And when they did, there was something drawn up called a ketubah, which was just a legal document that was basically a marriage license. And he would have to agree to this, and the ketubah is more on that groom to take care of her than anything else. But anyway, she was a part of this. So they would bring her in. Once the price was set, they would bring her in, and they would ask her, say, well, this guy's interested in marrying you. And I'm okay with it. The father would tell her, I'm okay with it. We worked it all out. But it's up to you. Are you okay with it? And they would pour a glass of wine and set it on the table. If she agreed to it, she would drink that wine and set down the goblet. And from that moment forward, you have to understand, she was considered married, even though they weren't. She was totally, completely spoken for. She was off limits. So when she left that house, now she is betrothed she would begin to wear a veil over her face. So now she would go to the well with the other young ladies and draw water like she always did, but the other young men that were scoping them out, they would go, well, that one has a veil. She's spoken for. She's off limits. And so whenever she drank of that cup and set it down, the father of the bride said, hey, we're good to go. So the bridegroom now, he paid the dowry, 
Now he has to go and prepare a place for her. Oh boy, this is going to start clicking here in a minute. He would have to go and prepare a place for her. And this could take up to a couple years because he would go back to his father's house and he would build onto it a bridal chamber. And his father would oversee the process. So he'd be there, you know, hammering away and, and cutting the boards and doing all that he's doing. And his father would come in and look at it. And you can just imagine, you know, he's saying things like, well, son, that is not stable. A good wind, and that's going to come down on your bride. You need to make sure that that is going to be taken care of. So he would oversee it. And it was an, it was an idiom during that time that no man knew the day nor the hour but the father because it was up to that groom's father to say it's time you're done it's good to go go get your bride and so when that time came the father would tell his son son this all looks good i believe it's sturdy you know you've had time i want you to go get your bride and the custom was to go as a thief in the night and do it in the night and so he would have the friends of the bridegroom would go with him. There would be like the blast of a shofar and there'd be a shout and his friends would be shouting out, behold, the bridegroom comes. And people knew when they heard it, they knew what was going on. It's a wedding processional. And so they would be going to his bride's house and the father of the bride, she would sleep on the second story. And so he would, take a ladder and throw it up and he would climb up that ladder to the window and say it's time now it was her responsibility to be faithful to her bridegroom it was her responsibility that while he was gone away that she was going to remain pure for him hello it was her responsibility she was going to wear a veil and she was going to keep herself pure and every night she did not know when he was going to come because she didn't know when his father was just going to decide one day it's time to go she didn't know so she had to live ready to leave at any time so every night she had to have an expectation as she went to sleep he could come tonight it could be the third watch it could be you know three in the morning but he could come tonight so what she would do is she would have her little lamp by her bed but she would keep an extra bottle of oil next to it because if he was to come late in the night her oil would burn up and get really low and could even go out but she needed to have that extra oil there she could dump in and she could be ready to go it was a preparation and so all of a sudden one night the father of the groom says, son, it's time. Go get your bride. Here they go. The shofar is blasting, people shouting. He goes there, he climbs up the ladder. He's catching away his bride out the window. Talking about an opening, an open heaven, an open door. Anyway, he catches her away as a thief in the night. And they go, there's a place that would be set up called a chopa, which, you know, would be a covering. And they would be married under that chopa. And they would exchange some vows and all that. And then in this culture, this is you know, kind of different for us, but anyway, in that culture, they actually had a place where the bride and the groom would go consummate their marriage after the fact. And they were not considered married till they did it. And so they would go to that place and consummate the marriage. 
And the bridegroom would come out. Now he's married. And I know this is kind of weird. Just bear with me. But it's the way it was. And they would show the, um, the bedding. And there would be blood there because she was a virgin. And there would be a witness that would say, okay, they're now officially married. It's over. And so they would go back and tell everybody, they're married now. It's, and everybody just starts celebrating. Music start playing. People start dancing. Here they go. Seven days they would party. Seven days. So, I think all of you guys can connect the dots. As we take this communion cup that we do every week, we're telling the Lord, we're doing this in remembrance of him until he comes. As we come together, first thing we do in River of Life, we take communion. But as we come together and we take that communion, we're saying, Lord, we're your bride. We're going to live a set-apart life. We're going to live a veiled life. We're going to be different. When we leave out of here, we're not going to live like everybody else. We're going to be faithful to you. And Jesus, the Father, has already set the dowry. What was the payment for a bride? It was his life on the cross. He paid it in full. And now he's gone to prepare a place for us. This isn't the mansions, even though I don't want to rabbit trail on that. But he's gone to prepare a place for us. That's the place where the marriage supper is going to take place. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And in a day and an hour that no man knows but the Father, the Father is going to tell Jesus, go get your, bri your bride. And Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. There's going to be a shofar blast. There's going to be a shout of the archangel, the friend of the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And there's going to be those that have made themselves ready, which I'll get into here in a moment, that are going to be caught away through a window like an open heaven, going to be caught away to be with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the relationship will be consummated. It's not a sexual thing, but I can't get into this. But it has to do with finishing that Passover meal. But anyway, we're all going to be together with the Lord. Now, understanding that, let me read Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise or prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent, the wise, they took oil and flask along with their lamps. They had extra oil. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No. There won't be enough for both of us. You go get your own. And while they were gone away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Y'all follow me? The bridegroom came. There were those that were ready and those that weren't. And those that were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also said, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. See, this makes a lot more sense because all ten virgins represent God's people. You're not dealing with five virgins and five harlots. God is saying to us, you Christians, you people of God, you watch, you pray, you be ready. Should he come at the third hour? Whenever he comes, we need to be ready and have that extra oil. Why were the, the, these wise virgins ready? Because they had extra oil. And Jesus said about them, I know them. 
The Lord is looking for a relationship. You know what the extra oil is? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. In these last days, God is pouring out his spirit. He's trying to get a bride ready for his coming. Let me just read through some of these. I don't know if all these are in your notes, but if you want to jot down Revelation 2.2. 2. It says, I know your deeds. This is the church of Ephesus. Your toil, your perseverance. You do not tolerate evil men. You put to test those that call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. But you, and you have perseverance and endured my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left, left your first love. Therefore, remember the height to which you've fallen and repent, do the deeds as you did at first, or else I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, here's an interesting thing in the Greek that you wouldn't pick up on. It says this, you have left your first love. It can translate, you have forsaken your supreme love feast. Look it up. It's referring to the communion table. I'm trying to show you something about a bride and a bridegroom. He's saying that you have neglected your first love, but you've also, in the Greek, you've neglected the communion table. And then he said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. If you go into the tabernacle of Moses, on the right, you're going to see the table of showbread. That's the communion table. You go there first, and then on the left is the menorah, the lampstand. The lampstand represents a fresh anointing. The lampstand represents revelation and it represents power, the power of God. People that neglect the blood of Jesus will be powerless. You know why a lot of places are powerless today? Not only do they neglect the communion table, but they neglect reverencing the blood of the lamb. And therefore they don't have a fresh anointing and the power of God in their life. I'm trying to show you that it's the blood of Jesus being reverenced that brings oil. It brings the extra oil that our lamps will be burning bright. Do you see what I'm saying here? As a bride, we're supposed to have lamps that are burning bright and we're supposed to have extra oil to be looking for his coming. For your individual lampstand to be burning bright and to be filled with extra oil, you're gonna have to come through the blood and reverence the blood and also believe the communion table is a powerful way to do that. Ephesians 5:25 Husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her cleansing her by washing of the water of the word that he might present himself the church in all of her glory having no spot wrinkle or any such thing the lord is coming for a bride without spot or blemish that she should be holy and blameless so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his own wife loves himself for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of one body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one. Now listen to what he says in verse 32. This is a mystery, a great mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, there's a lot of people in the body, but not everybody is necessarily a part of that remnant bride. Down through the ages, I've got just a couple more things I want to share, but down through the ages, God has always had a remnant. It reminds me of the days of Jezebel. When that woman was in power, that was Israel's darkest days, and that says a lot. But during that time, Elijah even became discouraged. A Jezebel spirit can attack somebody, and they can become so discouraged. You hear what I'm saying? So discouraged. And Elijah felt like he was alone. That all of God's true people were killed. You had a bunch of heathens running things. And he just wanted to die. Why am I even here? 
But God told Elijah, he said, don't worry. I have 7,000, which is not very many out of a nation, but I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knees to Baal nor kissed him. Now I'm telling you, down through the ages, God has always had a remnant. In the days Jesus walked the earth, God had a remnant that stayed true to Christ. Then whenever Constantine and those rose to power and started Roman Catholicism and, and began to persecute the true Christians, man, it was a strong persecution that, that ended up taking place. I mean, they were being burned alive, and, and one pope in one day killed more true Bible-believing Christians than, than, you know, all of the Roman Caesars that preceded him. And so it was a violent persecution, but yet God always had a remnant. Please hear what I'm about to tell you. In Jesus' day in the early church, the Jewish people, organized religion, Judaism, was really the greatest enemy to God's people. And then it ended up being the Roman Caesars from Nero to Diocletian. They were some of the greatest enemies to the church. And then it ended up being Roman Catholicism that became a great enemy. But through all of that, God always had a precious remnant in the earth. They may have had to go underground. They may have been small in number, but there was always a remnant. And I'll tell you something, it was organized religion and it was the institutionalized church down through the ages that has always been the greatest enemy to God's true people. You hear what I'm saying? Study it out yourself. Organized religion and the institutionalized church. And it grieves me today because even in our day, there's an institutionalized church where people feel that they're going to heaven because they, they belong to a church. Or they feel like they're going to heaven because they go to such and such denomination or whatever. Listen, things have not changed. The gospel's still the gospel. Either you are born again or you're not. And God's looking for relationship. He's not looking for religion. You can go to hell wearing a choir robe. You could be in church in a choir robe, just got baptized. You're still wet with baptismal waters. You got a communion wafer in your mouth. You got a hymn on your hand. And you could drop dead somehow and burn in hell because none of that's going to save you. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is being born again. And we're living in a time when people don't want to talk like that. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband so that Christ, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. Pure revelation 19 7 let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready god is separating in these days that we're living who is really his and who aren't really his there's a separation there's a falling away on one hand but there's a drawing close to the lord on the other here's the last two things i want to say along those lines Listen, I don't know about you, but I want to be a pure, pure virgin for the Lord. Amen? I'm talking about spiritually speaking, all of us, to be a pure bride without spot or blemish, ready when the Lord comes. I want my lampstand to be burning bright. I want to be bearing fruit. I want to have extra oil in my life. I want my garments to be pure. They're not spotted by the things that are of this world. And I'm going to tell you, just preaching it like it is, if it's okay with you guys, and I believe it is in River of Life, that God isn't going to put up with some of these games people are playing. It's not okay with him. It's not okay to see the drunkenness that's now among church people. It's not okay. And it's interesting to me that Jesus specifically mentions that in the Bible, in his uh, parables, he says that the, 
that the Lord was long in coming and people began to get drunk. It says those words. But anyway, what I'm saying is it's not okay that people, the drunkenness has come in. It's not okay that all of a sudden people are allowing things that are occult and allowing things that are, you know, are pagan, so to speak, and, and demonic in churches. God's not okay with them. And it grieves me that, that nowadays, that, you know, it, what's happened is it's not considered a holy sanctuary. It's considered an auditorium. And people will go out on the weekends and they'll get more tattoos, more piercings. They'll cuss like a sailor, go out to their bars and get drunk and then come in and lead worship. Do you really think that God's okay with that? Because I don't. When the Lord comes, it, it's interesting because uh, Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, speaks of the rapture prophetically. But it's interesting that it's called Yom Hadin, which means the day of judgment. On that day, one will be taken, another left. It's going to be judgment day. God's going to make it clear who's really his and who aren't, who's really right with him and who isn't, who was for him and who wasn't. You see what I'm saying? People can go to church all they want. They can call themselves Christians and all that, but God knows the truth behind the scenes. So let me give you two closing thoughts here. One is lawlessness, and the second one is escaping Babylon. I'm going to close with these. Number one, lawlessness, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light and darkness? Or what harmony is Christ and Belial? For, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? Do you see how Paul is saying, look, there's a distinction here. There is nothing in common with righteousness and lawlessness. I'm going to explain lawlessness a little bit. There's no fellowship between light and darkness. There's no harmony between Christ and Belial, which is a spirit of lawlessness. There's, what does a believer have in common with unbeliever? There's the temple of God or there's the idols, temple of idols. There's a distinction. Matthew 7, 21, how scary this would be. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Let me read that. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And he says, many, not a few, verse 22, Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We perform miracles. And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Once again, you see that word lawlessness. You know what the Antichrist is called? He's called the Antichrist. He's called the son of perdition. And he's called the man of lawlessness. The earth right now is being prepared for the rise of the lawless one. There was a pastor that I love and I was able to meet with him recently and we talked about a lot of different things. And he told me this. He's been in the ministry probably since the 60s. And he told me, he said, today, nowadays, it's virtually impossible to really pastor people in America. He says that by and large, churches are viewed like some kind of democracy. Everybody gets to say so. And he said that there's such a lawlessness, such a rebellion that if a pastor tries to deal with sin, tries to deal with something or a person that's not right, he said a lot of times in a lot of churches, the people will side with the sinner and turn against the pastor. Lawlessness. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembly of to, assembling of yourselves together 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're living in a time, we see so many people. Listen, let me just say this as plain as I can. Be, don't allow yourself to get thrown off or somehow messed up spiritually because of others. Might, might I go ahead and tell you that there's going to be people that are not faithful to the house of God? Might I go ahead and tell you there's going to be people that aren't faithful with their tithes and offerings? It's hard to respect them, I know. There's going to be people that aren't faithful. They're not faithful. People say, well, you know, I live for the Lord. Really? Are you witnessing? Are you doing? But don't, let me tell you, you may see some people fall into sin. You may see that there's Christian leaders that fall into sin. But I don't know about you, but I have made up my mind that come hell or high water, no matter what the devil tries to throw, Jezebel spirits, trouble, rebels, whatever the world does, whatever, I've made up my mind as an individual that even if everybody else is not going to go with God, I'm going with God. You're going to have to make up your mind. And there's going to be some people out there that disappoint you. You see people, a lot of times kids, and you see them get older, and they're, they're unstable. They're not faithful to God's house. They're unstable. If you do some background, you'll find out that's the way they were raised. That's just normal to them. Their parents were like that. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As ones who will give an account, let them do so with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Lawlessness where people don't want to come under authority and people don't want that responsibility being accountable let me tell you you know you say to somebody well look man you're you're going to be in a position where people are going to be looking at you you need to be above reproach you need to avoid the appearance of evil you need to be careful and th their tendency is well then i'll just step down from that role well that's an ahab that's that's somebody that's trying to shirk responsibility why can't god trust you to man up or woman up and just be what you're supposed to be. Amen? It's challenging nowadays. You see, you see a lot of stuff in church. But anyway, let me say these last two things here. Satan desires to replace true biblical authority with a counterfeit authority. Hear this. Of all things I said tonight, hear this. Satan desires to replace true biblical authority with counterfeit authority. He seeks to replace true Holy Spirit revelation with counterfeit revelation and false prophet voices. He seeks to replace true teachers with false and create a lawless environment. Let me read that again. Satan desires to replace all true biblical authority with counterfeit authority. He wants to replace the true Holy Spirit revelation with counterfeit revelation and false prophet voices. He seeks to replace true teachers with false and thus create a lawless environment. And so this is the last thing I want to say is about escaping Babylon. Revelation 18, 4. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins and you will not receive her plagues. God is calling us to come out from among them. Now listen, this Babylonian system, I wish that I had gotten to this a little earlier so I wouldn't feel rushed, but it, I'll close it out quickly. But the Babylonian system that we live in is the kingdom that's a spiritual kingdom that Satan has dominion. And the spirits that traffic in this are very powerful spirits. I'm talking about when Jesus, when Satan took Jesus up to the temple and he showed him the kingdoms of the world, Satan told Jesus, these kingdoms of this world have been given to me. I can give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. Remember? Jesus never 
you know, came against the fact that these were given to Satan because they were, they were given to him by Adam. And Satan temporarily is the little G God of this world temporarily. But how many know Jesus is coming back? Right now, Satan has some kind of a dominion over the nations of the earth. And right now he has this Babylonian system. And in this system, God has called us, even though we're here, we're to be salt and light. And we're in this world, but we're not of it. What I'm saying is don't get too entangled up in the systems of this world. Let me give you some example. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, we're the temple of the living God. God said, I will dwell among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch what's unclean. I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. But here's a couple things. Don't get too entangled with the financial systems of this world. One of the ways that you can break the power, and, and it, it amazes me because when you talk about certain things, man, you can feel that there's, and this isn't river of life by and large. I am not saying this about most people here, but man, you can sense like a rebellion in people against certain things. But anyway, the way you can break the power of that spirit of mammon is just by simply obeying the Bible with tithes and offerings. When you give God your first fruits and you give him your tithe and you do that, as you give that unto him, it brings a blessing and sets apart the rest of your finances and it breaks the power of this Babylonian system off your money. It just does. And the spirit of this world system also, and this is just two examples, I could give a lot, but don't get too wrapped up with the, the entertainment industry. Don't get too wrapped up in the political system. But also be careful with medical science and them getting you in bondage to drugs. Pharmakeia in the Greek, look this up. Pharmakeia is drugs and it was connected in the Bible to sorcery, but it's a bondage. Nonetheless, people get so bound up. Try, pray about this, pray about what I'm telling you, but I want as much as I possibly can to live free from this Babylonian system. I'm here, but I'm not in bondage to it. I'm in this world, but it doesn't control me. I'm going to live my life by kingdom principles, and therefore I'm living free from all that bondage of this world. And the spirit of this world is not going to control me. It's not going to control my family. All right. Let's pray tonight. I hope this has been a blessing. Help you guys. Father, I thank you so much for the power of your word. We love your word. We want to come out and be separate. We want to be a, a people that are a bride made ready for your coming. And we want to be a people of a fresh anointing that have that fresh oil, extra oil. So whether you come in the third hour of the night, the sixth hour, whatever, we want to be ready to be caught away with you as a thief in the night. We want to be your pure people.